You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. In uh, the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 15, we read this. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I think we can all relate to this verse. I mean, we've all started the different days, maybe today even, with the intention of doing something good, and then we end the day maybe not having done that good. And we've all promised to ourselves and maybe to others that we're going to stop doing something, only to watch ourselves keep doing it. The question is why. Why can't we seem to do what we want to do? And why can't we seem to stop doing what we don't want to do? And that's the question that we're going to really be addressing in this new message series, How People Tick. We're going to be taking a look at what's going on on the inside of us that is driving the behavior that oftentimes we don't understand. There appears to be a lot between us making a decision and us carrying out an action. We're going to look at what goes on in that mystery part between where we decide and where we do or don't act. But before we pop the hood and take a look at how we tick, I want to answer another why question today that really makes the whole series uh, important. And the question is this, why does it matter what we do or don't do? And I want to address this question primarily to those of us who have already decided to follow Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're checking it out, that is great. And this is a question, if you decide to cross the line and follow Jesus Christ, this is a question that will pop into your head after you've made that decision, is, okay, now that I've decided to follow Jesus, why does it matter what I do? And the reason is because if you decided to follow Jesus, you've been rescued. You've been saved is the term that the Bible says often. What that means is your sins are forgiven. Your past sins are forgiven. Your today's sins are forgiven. And all of your future sins are forgiven. And that begins to mess with your mind. If my future sins are forgiven then why does it matter whether I do them or don't do them? And what you do or don't do will have absolutely no effect on God's love for you. If you had a bad day, God's love for you doesn't diminish. If you have a good day, God's love for you doesn't increase. God's love for us is constant. And in addition to that, his promise of eternity for those who have accepted the forgiveness offered in Jesus Christ, his promise of eternity is not compromised by our actions, what we do or what we don't do. So then the question that comes in all of our minds eventually, and maybe continually, is so then why does it matter, really, what we do? And for many Christians, they haven't announced it, but they have subtly and quietly decided it really doesn't matter that much what I do. And for them, their salvation looks kind of like this picture. This is a person being rescued in a basket by a helicopter. And as the person being rescued, they are passive participants in the rescue effort. Now, they weren't always passive. There was a point before they got in the basket that they were probably very active. They realized their predicament, or someone close to them realized their predicament. They realized that they could not work their way to safety. And so they called out for help. It's very much like what we've done if we've decided to follow Jesus Christ. We've recognized our predicament. 
Maybe we've spent years trying to extricate ourselves from our moral challenges and, and make things right again, and we finally realize we just can't do it. And we've come to understand the offer of forgiveness and help that comes with Jesus Christ, and we've called for him. But the question now is, now what? Now what happens? Are we like this person in the basket, kind of just along for the salvation ride? And if that's the case, then it really doesn't matter whether we do or don't know the Bible. And it therefore doesn't really matter whether we do or don't do what it says. Now, I'm talking about practical. No one would ever say this. No one would ever say, you know, I I don't really need to spend much time learning the Bible. No one says that. They just live that. Because in their heart of hearts, down deep, they just don't think it matters that much what they do. Because, well, Jesus has rescued them. He's forgiven them. They're pretty much set. They're safe in the basket, and that's all that matters. But this is not how God views our rescue, a helicopter in a basket. This is what we read in the two verses we're going to focus on this morning, Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. The New Testament was written in the Greek language, and there's one Greek word here that's translated into two English words, very careful. The one Greek word is acrobos. It's where we get the word acrobat from. What, it, what it's saying is, as you move forward in life, don't just walk around saying, oh, I'd like to do that, and oh, I'd like to do this. No, no be like an acrobat that's very carefully walking on a tightrope. Back in 2012, I watched acrobat Nick Walenda walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. That was very suspenseful for me, just sitting on a couch. I can't imagine what it was like for him actually doing it. And he was very careful. Every step he took was a careful one. And that's because careless acrobats, for the most part, are dead acrobats. And that's because gravity is real. And this is the same way moral reality is, just because we can't see Moral reality doesn't mean it's less real. What that means is you step out of line with what God says is right, and the consequences begin to flow. They flow much more slowly than a misstep on a high wire, and therefore that's why it's easy for us to ignore them or pretend like they don't really have consequences. But the consequences flow, and over time we experience the result of our choices. I don't know if you can see the, in this picture, if it's clear enough to see that little safety line running from the back of, of his belt to that wire. It's a very little thing, and it kind of followed him as it went along. This was a requirement that the authorities had before they allowed him to uh, do this particular stunt. And that's so that if he took a wrong step, he wouldn't die on live TV. And this, I think, is, is a pretty accurate picture of how God saves us. You see, there is this great chasm that exists between us and God, the chasm of our, of our sin. 
And there's nothing that we can do to get across from one side, from our side to God's side. We can't jump. It's way farther than we can jump. There's no moral effort. We can't swim in that current and make it across. We're stuck on our side, separated from God. And so God decided to cover the distance. He came to our side. He took on a body, came to earth. His name is Jesus Christ. And through what he did, and particularly what he did on the cross, he ran a wire, in a sense, across the chasm between us and God, and he was the first one to cross from one side to the other. And he invites us now to follow him. Not get in a rescue basket, but walk on a tightrope towards him until the day we die. Now, if we fall, if we fail, and we do, there is that wire. He will catch us. But then he won't bring in the helicopters. To end the event, he will then set us back on that wire and say, let's keep walking. This is why it says in another New Testament passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Not because we don't know if we're going to make it to the other side, but because we're hanging out over that chasm and moral gravity is real. Just because we've decided to follow Jesus doesn't mean that God has suspended moral gravity for us and our choices don't have any impact on the pain we experience in life. No, what we do has real consequences. Not only on us, but on the people that we are close to and the people that we impact. Now, thankfully, God is not just watching us from his side, clapping and cheering. No, he's with us. This verse in Philippians goes on to say, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. If we decide to follow Jesus, not only do we get the, the wire to cross, to make progress, to grow, we also get his presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of us to do two main things, to get us to will to do the right thing, to want to do the right thing, and then help us actually do the right thing, take those steps. And this is why it's very important that the choices that we make, as it says in this Ephesians verse we're looking at this morning, that the choices that we make are wise, not unwise. That really matters. The steps we make, the decisions we make really matter. We are being saved by tightrope, not by basket. So this morning, out of this, these two verses in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, we're going to look at the three realities that this, these two verses describe that explain why we need to walk like acrobats. Why, why this acrobat kind of living? The first reality that's described for us is we need to live like acrobats because our circumstances are not friendly. As it says at the end of this, these two verses, the days that we live are evil. The days are evil. What this is saying is that our environment is not friendly. Our environment is not even neutral. Our environment is opposed to everything that God says is right and good. Now, I keep being surprised by that. 
But God says that's just the way it is and has always been. The days are evil. So let me show you two very different circumstances, two different environments, a friendly and an unfriendly. First one, this is, uh, this is people trying to decide what flavor of ice cream to order. This is at Cold Stone, before COVID. People all packed in, no masks, probably <laughs> spitting on each other and don't even know about it. <laughs> this will never be seen probably again. So that, that's one environment, trying to make an ice cream decision. If you've been to Cold Stone, it's complicated. The next decision is of soldiers trying to decide how to advance against an enemy without getting killed. Two very different environments. One is friendly, one is not friendly. So if you're making an ice cream decision, does it really matter what you decide to do? I mean, for if you're trying to keep weight off, yeah, you probably shouldn't even be there. But you've already made that decision, so now you're making the flavor decision. And it really doesn't matter what you decide. But if you're in a war zone and you're looking around that corner and you're trying to figure out, should we advance this way or that way, you really need to be careful. You need to be very careful. You need to be acrobat careful. Because ice cream mistakes, well, they're usually not deadly ones. But combat mistakes, they're like acrobat mistakes. They can be deadly. So the question that we all have to ask is, are we in a safe environment, safe set of circumstances, or dangerous? Now, we would look at it and say, well, kind of both. There's some areas in our world that are safe, some are dangerous. But God looks out on our world and says, I can see what you can't see. And let me just tell you, every moment of every day, you and your spouse and your children and those you love are in grave danger every single day. The days are evil. And this is not God just, you know, giving a, a pessimistic view of the future. This is God describing the reality that we can't see. The next chapter in Ephesians, he kind of takes the veil off the unseen world and lets us see the evil that is lined up against us that we cannot see. I mean, we can see some of the physical evil, but we can't see the vast evil that is unseen that's driving so much of what goes on in this world. And that's why we're regularly surprised by evil. I mean, if, if someone asks you, how was your day, and you say good, they say great and move on. If you say bad, everything stops. Because that's the aberration. Oh, no, you've had a bad day? Well, God says every day is an evil day. Here's what he sees and tells us about in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the stuff we can see. It's really against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, the invisible realms. Yes, there are friendly people all around us. But that's not all that's true of our circumstances. There are also unfriendly people, and there are dangerous people. We know this about our world. We raise our kids to understand this. And there just are a lot of struggles in life. We all know this. We can see this. 
I mean, we're, we know that we're not at just one big ice cream counter every day trying to figure out which flavor of happiness we'd like to sample today. We know that's just not the way life is. We are often fighting against our own dark emotions and dark impulses and maybe financial challenges and maybe difficult family members, maybe challenging coworkers and COVID. We see that stuff. But God says there's more. Behind all the struggles that we can see, there are spiritual forces of evil that we cannot see. And it's these unseen forces that are often driving the problems that we are facing in life. And this verse indicates this is not just a general push of evil. This is a well-organized, structured, strategic, intelligent army. I mean, it describes them. Some of them are called rulers. To be a ruler, that means you've got people under your command. There's thought, there's strategy, there's structure. Some are called rulers, some are called authorities. Others are called powers of this dark world. Another way of saying it, some are like generals commanding thousands. Others are like lieutenants commanding hundreds. Some, well, they're the frontline soldiers that are assigned to the battlefield. The battlefield with my name on it and with your name on it. So we may occasionally think we're having a bad day, and we have no idea how bad things really are. Every once in a while, we get a glimpse, and we're just shocked at our world. And God says, oh, yeah, if you could see everything, you would understand that the days are evil. We are, in fact, facing a lot of unfriendlies who are trying to get us to give up on life, or at least waste our life one day at a time. It's an enemy who doesn't shoot bullets. This unseen enemy shoots thoughts and emotions to get us off track. In a sense, we are living in spiritual Afghanistan. And therefore, it is unwise to just wander around doing whatever you want to do. There are landmines out there that can really cost us. So we need to live carefully. We need to live acrobatically. Not because if we don't, we won't get to heaven. No, Jesus will get us to heaven. We need to live acrobatically because our circumstances are not friendly. And the second reason is because our world is not simple. Again, if you're making an ice cream decision, Cold Stone makes it more complex than probably it has to be. But it's really not that complex. But if you're making pretty much any life decision, the complexity really goes up, depending on the decision. If it's a relationship decision, it can be very complex. And that's why we are told that we are to live not as unwise, but as wise. What, is, what does that mean? You know, when God commands us to do something in the Bible, it's because it's not natural to do it. So he tells us to be wise because what's natural is to be unwise or to be foolish. If we were naturally wise, then God wouldn't have to tell us to work on it. 
we are naturally foolish people, unwise. Now, being foolish in the Bible is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It means basically to make decisions without God. You just don't factor God in as you make decisions. You make financial decisions, you make career decisions, you make fun decisions, but in all those decisions, God is really not the major factor. That's the normal approach. We all just normally do that. Wisdom, on the other hand, is situational obedience to God. It really is the merging of the knowledge of what God has said in the Bible and how that applies to the situation I find myself in now and the ability to take that knowledge and do, know what to do in the moment. It's situational obedience. It's the merging of knowledge with skill. In a sense, it's what athletes do with the rule book of their particular sport. You need to know the rules of whatever sport you're going to compete in. The rules describe the boundaries, the goals under which that particular sport is, is played. But it's one thing to learn the rules in the book, and it's an entirely other thing to actually work with that knowledge in the heat of the moment of competition. That takes skill. That's what the Bible means by wisdom. In the heat of the moment, you can take God's rule book, the boundaries and the goals that he sets out, and you can apply them in the middle of this contentious business meeting or in the middle of your kids doing something that you can't figure out or in the middle of a marriage argument or in the middle of a financial set of bad news. You can take that knowledge from the rule book and with skill know what to do. That's not natural. That takes time. You know, this past summer, watching the Olympics, our, my wife and I, our favorite competition usually is the swimming, and it was again this year. So let me ask you, swimming at the Olympic level, is that simple or is that complex? That's complex. But you know, if you listen to the interviews, you'd get the idea that, oh, it was pretty simple. Most of the interviews of the individuals who won the gold medal, because we don't care about anybody else, but the individuals who won the gold medal, most of those interviews... They, 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 you know, we all know what they're going to say. We know what the announcers are going to ask. First of all, how does it feel? Basically, what can I do to get you to cry? That's, that's, that's my first goal. If I can get you to cry, ratings go up. So something sad happened in your life I can bring up to make you cry. But then when they get to the actual competition, the question is, how were you able to swim so fast? How did that happen? And the answers, again, they gave some different ones, but basically, and this is my observation, they came down to two basic answers that, that the, the athletes repeated again and again and again and again. Answer number one was, I just decided to go out and have fun. <laughs> really? That's... <laughs> well, what if I go out and decide to have fun? <laughs> Can I get a gold medal too? I don't think so. So I just decided to go out and have fun. And then the second thing I say, which is really not an answer to any question, it's just what every Olympic athlete knows they're supposed to say now, is let this be a lesson to all the kids, okay? You know what's going to follow. Like me, you can do whatever you set your heart on. 
Really? Well, let's get the 5,000 other athletes who competed for the gold medal and interview them. Did they not set their heart on this? So clearly, it takes more than desire and fun because we're talking about Olympic-level competition. Now, if we're talking about ice cream, what brought you to this counter? <laughs> oh, I just want to have some fun? <laughs> right. And how did you make this decision? Well, I just thought chocolate looked good. <laughs> Let this be a lesson to everyone. You can select ice cream just like me. <laughs> right. You can. Everyone can do that. But that just doesn't make sense if you're talking about a complex environment like Olympic competition or marriage or parenting or you name any other real-life circumstance. That requires wisdom. And it turns out, and we know this, all those Olympians had coaches. And they swam miles every week. Why? The complexity was too great for them just to grasp on their own. They needed coaches. So if we're going to be wise, if we are going to live acrobatically, carefully in life, we need a source of truth that can help us navigate the complexity of life. And we need some help. We need coaches to help us figure things out. We can't do this on our own. Now, there is no authority higher than God when it comes to wisdom. His wisdom is recorded for us in the Bible. He's given us the principles, the moral principles that govern the complexity of life. And in the church, God has given us access to a lot of people who have worked hard at building a life based on those principles. This is where you can find people who aren't perfect, but that are a little further ahead of you and therefore can help you in different areas of life. Proverbs 14, 15 says, The simple believe anything. But the prudent, it's another word for wise, they give thought to their steps. Now, our culture tends to agree with the first three words, the simple belief. In other words, it's the naive that decide to believe. They, they're the ones, they're the people of faith, the people that aren't smart like the rest of us and need something. I understand there are naive people, weak people that need faith. That's the general idea in our culture right now. People who really don't, they have a diminished mental capacity. That's why they're people of faith. That's the thought. But the point in this passage, in this verse, is the focus is not on the word believe. The focus is on the word anything. You see, the truth is we all believe. Why? The world is far too complex to make it very far without trusting in something beyond you. We all have to believe in something bigger than us. Because it's so complex, this world is, that we can't know it all. I mean, look at every area of your life. I mean, I, I can't know all that I need to know to fix my car and know all that I need to know to get my computer working and to know all that I need to know to fix my plumbing. And it turned out this week, all that I need to know to do my taxes. And it, the list just goes on and on. So what that means is we're all going to have to decide to trust somebody that knows more than we do. We're going to have to pick a mechanic to fix our car. We're going to have to get advice on parenting 
and on and on it goes. We are finite individuals. We have limited mental capacity. Even the smartest of us can't know everything. So we are designed to decide who to trust, not to become an independent source of knowledge and wisdom. In a sense, we're more like a trailer than a car when it comes to making decisions. A trailer has to be hitched to something. That, that's, we have to attach ourselves to something. We have to believe. So even people that say, well, I'm not a person of faith. No, no, you are. You're, you believe something. The big question of life is what do you believe in? What is it that you've attached your life to? You've attached your life to something, some set of ideas. And here's the bigger question is, do you know where it's taking you? You've attached yourself, the hitch of your trailer to this. Do you know where it's going? The simple, the naive, they believe anything, which means they don't think before they believe. They don't investigate and ask, where is this belief going? And particularly, what is my life going to look like when I'm 80 and when I'm 90? What's my family life going to look like? They don't think that far ahead. They just believe based on their feelings or what their friends believe or what the culture is saying, and the results are not good. It's kind of like walking a tightrope blindfolded. So because our world is not simple, because it's very complex, we do need to believe, we need to trust, we need to attach ourselves to something bigger than us to make it through life. It is the wise that attach themselves to the one who made this and knows how it works. That brings us to the third reality behind why we need to live acrobatically. Time is not on our side. Time is not on your, our side. Now, if you're young, you don't believe that. I turned 62 this week. I believe it. I've experienced it. Time is not on our side. What I mean by that is time just keeps marching on. It doesn't wait for us. I mean, if you come to a, an intersection of a big decision in your life, time doesn't slow down and say, ooh, I can tell this is going to be a big intersection for you. So let's just slow things down so you can take whatever time you need to and make sure you make the very best decision. Nope. Time just keeps marching on at the same pace it always has. you got to make a decision. And if you made a bad decision, time doesn't say, oh, would you like a mulligan on that? You want to do over? No, you can't go back. Time's not on, our, not on our side. And what that means is the life that you and I are living is a byproduct of choices that we've made that have shaped everything about our life. For example, for me, I've been married to my wife, Rebecca, now for over 36 years. I can't imagine my life without her. But there was one decision on one day back in 1982 that allowed me to meet her. If I'd made a different decision, my life would be very different. I don't know what, but it'd be different than it is right now. And on that day, when I woke up, the thought never crossed my mind, today is going to be one of the biggest days of your life, Bevan. You're going to meet your future wife today. 
Don't be a jerk. <laughs> Have some courage. No. I didn't know that. That opportunity came. And that day shaped my future. And it wasn't just that day. Honestly, every day has shaped my life. Some of the days were bigger, like the day I met my wife. Some were smaller, but they all mattered. And together, they all add up to the decisions that shape the life I'm living now, for good or for bad. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it, how precarious life is. How much like a tightrope our decisions really are. I mean, we go left instead of right, and our future takes a very different path. I mean, the reason all of you are here today, living in Huntington Beach, was because of some decisions, and you can probably think back right away, you know, if I'd done this instead of that, I wouldn't be living here. I wouldn't know these people. I wouldn't have met my wife or my husband. I wouldn't have had these kids. So what is that, knowing how precarious life is, and the time is not on our side, what are we supposed to do? Just roll the dice every day and hope for the best? No, that's not the way an acrobat walks, and that's not the way the wise live. We are to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, is what we're told in Ephesians. God calls these decisions that shape our future opportunities. In the moment, they may look small, but they shape the future. They are not ice cream decisions. You know, if you, if you pick strawberry and you don't like it, go back tomorrow and try vanilla. But if you marry the wrong person, ouch. That's a little harder to recover from. That will shape your future. Even if that marriage doesn't last, and even if you marry somebody that you much prefer to that one, you will be marked by that decision. The days are evil. The enemy is doing his dead-level best to get you to pick the wrong spouse, to move to the wrong place, to make the wrong friends, to take the wrong job. On and on it goes. Now, thankfully, God is not watching. He is involved, willing to guide us. But if we're just kind of whistling through life, we're going to miss the opportunities. How does God guide us? It goes on in Ephesians to describe how he guides us. This is what it says in verse 17 through 20. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, great. How? Do not get drunk on wine. First, some things not to do. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What this is saying. First of all, it says, don't do your tightrope walking drunk. Okay? Pretty good advice. Makes sense. If you're going to get drunk, make a big decision. Is that going to be a good decision? It's going to be a bad decision. So don't do that. Okay, got it. Instead, get under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. What it's literally saying by comparison is get drunk on the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we call it being under the influence. It doesn't mean you have no awareness of what's going on, but there's a lot of other influence. That's the way we need to be. We need to be 
influenced by the Holy Spirit, filled with him. The big question is, okay, I know how to get drunk on wine. How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, that's what the rest of these verses tell us. Here's what's interesting about what follows. In the Greek language, which is what this was written in, there is no period from the point where it starts, instead be filled with the Spirit. There's no period that follows there. In English, there has to be because our language is constructed where we can't go that. It's a run-on sentence. It's against our rules, but not in Greek. You can just run. You can go on and on and on and on. So that's what, that's what follows. In fact, it's a list of things that starts here in verse 19 and goes all the way to verse 9 of chapter 6. The longest sentence in the New Testament is what this is. It's all about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's fascinating is it's a list of rituals. There are marriage rituals that are described in this list. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole list. I highly encourage you to read it. There are marriage rituals. There are family rituals. There are rituals for employees. There are rituals for bosses that help you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what's the big deal about rituals? Rituals are patterns of behavior that we have repeated so often that we don't have to decide whether or not we're going to do it. That's what a ritual is. If you have to make a decision, it's not a ritual. A ritual just is so repetitive, it's, it's automatic. You just do it. And rituals are really powerful. I mean, if you look at any part of your life that is successful, you will find rituals that support that success. For example, if you're a healthy eater, I'm going to promise you it's because you have eating rituals. If you wake up every day and say, huh, what am I hungry for? You are not a healthy eater. There's no way you can be. No person has the self-discipline to make three or more decisions a day and have them all be healthy. You have to set up some rituals. You have to build some patterns. It gets to the point where you don't even have to think about it. This is what I have for breakfast, what I have for lunch on Tuesdays, this is what, whatever it is. That's how you get successful. If you're a successful athlete, I promise you, you don't wake up every day and say, hmm, probably should work out. I wonder what I should do. No, you got some rituals. If you're successful in your career, you are not making it up every single day. You got some rituals that you've learned and you've developed and you've honed that's driving your success. It's not all you do, but it's at the foundation of what's making you successful. The rituals support your skill. It's the same with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. If we want to develop the skill of wisdom, we want to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, we need the rituals that support it. That's what this list is. That's why this is the longest sentence in the New Testament. We've got to work on these rituals. Now, I don't have time to go through the whole list, so I'm going to just mention the first one. The ritual list begins with what we're doing right here. 
Sunday. It says, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What we did before I got up to speak was not a concert. It wasn't. We were speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We were saying, as we were singing, that these words are true. This is what matters. Look at all of us singing, not just listening, singing. And we were also singing and making music in our heart to the Lord. So we were saying it to each other. Basically, hey, everybody, this stuff is true. This is real. This matters. And we were singing it to the Lord. We were saying, God, you're my top priority. You see, what we do here on Sundays, this is really about putting our daily life, our life, in a larger context. It's about reducing the size of our self-importance and elevating the size of God. And we just, we need that every week. And the result of this should be we walk away grateful, as it says, for everything, even the hard stuff. We do this every Sunday. It's a ritual. We didn't start this ritual. God did. In the creation story, we were told that he rested on the seventh day, not because he needed it, because he was setting an example for us, he says. This is the first ritual. And he's told us to do the same thing. Why? Time is not on our side. The days just keep marching on. If we're going to have a fighting chance at making wise God-referenced decisions, we need to pause one day in seven and worship him and remember him and ask for help. Now here's the challenge for us right now. This ritual used to be a part of our culture. There was all kinds of cultural support for this ritual. <laughs> Not anymore. I mean, stores used to be closed on Sunday. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that. That used to be the case. Nothing's closed on Sundays anymore. I remember when our kids were young, we had to make some really hard decisions, particularly about the sports they could play because sports were beginning to be played on Sunday. How about now? Oh, it's the best sports day of the week for you sports. So now it's even harder for a family to decide, you know what, this ritual is going to be our priority. You have to pay a price for that. So what's the big deal about this ritual? Rituals are one of the ways that we tell ourselves, and if we're parents, we tell our kids what's really important in life. If you're a healthy eater, your kids see that ritual, and they get the clear idea, you know what, what I put in my mouth is probably important. Not because you've told them, but because they see your ritual every day. Ritual is how we say what's important. So if your ritual is to bring your kids to church, unless there's an important sporting event, or the surf is good, or, and I'll let you go on, what you're telling your kids is that that item is more important. Now, you would never, never say this. And honestly, one time isn't going to say this. I mean, ritual isn't what you do all the time. Every, it's what you do the vast majority of the time. 
But if this is not your ritual, your kids get the message loud and clear. Now, we would never sit down as parents and tell our kids, hey, hey, kids, heads up here. Just want to let you know that God really isn't number one. He's kind of more like ice cream. He's dessert. You know, if, if you have room for him after you've completed the main course, the things that really matter, well, then let's get a little ice cream. You would never say that. But that's what you're saying. Well, then, if you're a parent, you face another challenge. They get old enough to the point where they start telling you, I don't want to go to church anymore. Happened to us. I'm the pastor of the church. That church is boring. I don't want to go to church anymore. So then you face another decision. Really helped me on this is to think, okay, so <laughs> we also faced the moment when our kids didn't want to wear seatbelts anymore. How do we handle that? Sorry, you're wearing a seatbelt. Why? Because we think gravity's real. If your kids don't want to go to church and you say, okay, you've just told them, this God stuff, it's not real, real. It's a maraschino cherry on top of the ice cream. As parents, if your kids are home, you are preparing your kids for a high-wire act, not for an ice cream counter. They need God as they make their decisions. And they're going to go off to college, and they're going to make decisions that will shape their, de their next two to three decades or more. They need God. Now, bringing them to church isn't going to guarantee. But this is the first ritual. Now, this Sunday ritual was already falling on hard times in our culture. But COVID, <laughs> well, COVID blew a hole right in the middle of it, obviously. It disrupted this ritual for all of us. The thing about rituals is they, the fascinating thing about rituals is they take almost no time to fall apart and an incredible amount of time to build. You know, I started this year with a ritual of riding my bike every 50 miles. I ran into a, a mild health challenge and got off my bike for a couple weeks that turned into six weeks. And when I got back on my bike, I would say for the next three or four weeks, I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. I hate this. I mean, it just, it took no time for it to all fall apart. And lots of time to rebuild it. I encourage you to rebuild this ritual, whatever that means for you. So Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, be very careful in how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are not happy faces. The days are evil. Let's pray. Father, time is marching on. Those of us that are older really see that. But it's marching for all of us. This day is going to be in the books, and the next day will we'll come right away. And I pray that you'd help us to make the most of the opportunities, not just so that we can be good people or happier people, as good as that is, but that our lives might really count for what matters. There will be a moment in eternity when we look back and it'll be almost hard to remember 
this place, even this country will be just yet another blip on the line of nations. But what we did while we were on the stage of time will be what it was. I pray you'd help us to make the most of these opportunities. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.